Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to episode two of the Never Never podcast, exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus episodes of a more topical nature. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, graphic novels, and blog posts, interviews, and panels from the butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality, fantasy violence, and very real violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way into the Never Never. Episode 2, A Tiger's Soul. Recorded May 29th, 2020. Covering Stormfront, Book 1, Chapters 3 through 5. In this episode, Harry's adventure gains more layers, all of them wrinkly, He's threatened, I mean encouraged, by Gentleman Johnny Marcone, the head of the Chicago Mafia, to leave the murder alone. If he does, Lieutenant Karen Murphy, his biggest client, will drop him. If he doesn't, you know, kneecaps, maybe? He meets with his missing persons client and emerges mostly caught up on his rent. Then he goes to Sandwich at McAnally's, where the sexy reporter, Susan Rodriguez, Winkle's a date out of Harry. Um, We have more major character introductions and a bit of speculation for your consideration. So with no more ado, here is your synopsis. Chapter 3, Marcone and the Soul Gaze. As Cujo Hendricks drives them to Harry's office, Marcone tries to bribe Harry with a paid vacation to the tune of $1,200 a day. Harry is his usual uh, obnoxious, principled self, and blows off the proposal. Oh, is it the money? Well, double the fee. While refusing, Harry locks eyes with Marcone, and almost in a game of chicken, they soul gaze. Harry sees the pragmatic and dangerous soldier behind the salesman, but believes he's been duped into revealing his own soul to Marcone, and feels both angry and terrified. They trade threats, Harry gets out of the car, and hurries to his office for his appointment. Chapter 4, Monica and the Scorpion. Harry meets with Monica and notes that she's mid-30s, not hurting for money, and nervous as a doe in a coyote paddock. Harry tries to put her at ease, And at his continual prompting, Monica explains that her husband has been gone for three days, and she's worried because he's been into some scary occult shenanigans, even tarot cards. The police won't look, thinking he just skipped out on his family, but he didn't, he wouldn't. Besides, cops don't know about magic. She gives Harry her husband's name, a picture of Victor Sells, the address to their lake house, a number cash retainer, and a dried scorpion talisman, the only witchy thing he didn't take with him when he left. Harry's been furiously taking notes during the interview and assures her he'll call her soon. After Monica leaves, 
Harry considers the details of the case, plans his investigation. The scorpion was mounted to be worn around the neck and may be a sinister and worrying sign that maybe Victor was involved in some kind of dark magic. Or maybe it was nothing. A desert curiosity. He'd check hospitals and morgues to rule that out. Uh, deposit the money, pay his late rent. Oh, did the scorpion just move? In a drawer with you! Chapter 5. McAnally's. Susan and the date. Harry needs food. And a beer. Off to Max. The cheers of Chicago's magical underground. Mac is tall, gangly, middle-aged, and adamant that real ale should not be chilled. A man of few words, he also manages to keep his white apron crisp and clean, despite tending bar and cooking over a wood-burning grill. Harry orders and starts to unburden himself. Nasty business at the Madison. Mac grunts. Another three-eye rampage? Mac grunts. Junkies convinced the drug gave him the sight. Not possible. Mac nods. Then Mac tells Harry he was followed, and Harry's immediate reaction is to ready a spell. Still paranoid? Check. But then he smells Susan's perfume. Harry startles Susan with a preemptive identification, and they begin to flirt and banter. Susan tries to seductively grill Harry for a story for her yellow rag, the Midwest Arcane, and Harry keeps tight-lipped, as a good consultant for the CPD and Wizard of the White Council should. Even so, she manages to trip him up and extract a date with Harry tomorrow night. After she leaves, Harry thinks out loud to Mac that he knows she's trying to pump him for a story, and that's probably a bad idea, but that she's smart and sexy, and who wouldn't want a date with her? Mac responds monosyllabically, as usual. Harry ponders to himself whether or not he would want more than dinner and talk, if it's on offer. He has a tremendously bad track record with the ladies. He does more mental planning for work as he takes a doggy bag home to his cat, Mr. Which brings us to the context section. Here we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character intros, world building, as well as any meta aspects, mythology, callbacks to previous books, foreshadowing, and theory. Chapter 3, Marcone and the Soul Gaze. Marcone is set up early as a formidable antagonist. He looks like a middle-aged, warm-mannered football coach, not a mob boss bent on revenge. One of his people was harmed, and he cannot let go that incursion into his territory. Marcone doesn't want the cops to find the killer of his bodyguard. He wants to troubleshoot the problem in-house. Despite how desperately he needs the money, Harry is having none of it. Uh, Marcone knows that Harry is a real-deal wizard, not a shyster or illusionist. He decides not to push his requests. Marcone's not looking for new enemies. He says, just let me deal with it. Nothing good can come from this investigation. Harry overcompensates for his fear and gets aggressive. Making an enemy of me would indeed be a very bad idea. And he leaves chiding himself for reacting so rashly. He knew it had made him look weak. The soul gaze reveals the utilitarian efficiency with which Marcone controls his criminal empire and himself, never indulging needless violence in the former or fear in the latter. 
rock of Gibraltar determination Marcon has to own it all and to ruthlessly protect what is his. I want to read this excellent descriptive passage from where I pulled the episode title. Quote, I felt scared to death of this man. I had looked on his soul, and it had been as solid and barren as a stainless steel refrigerator. It was more than unsettling. He was strong inside, savage and merciless without being cruel. He had a tiger's soul." Unquote. So Harry sees Marcone's soul as a cold, empty fridge, but I'd like to assert that it's not entirely empty. Like a person who keeps their slice of anniversary wedding cake for years after the divorce, never intending to eat it, not willing to throw it away, there lies the dark secret Harry senses in the back corner of the freezer covered in too much frostburn to identify. It's the reason Marcone keeps the rest of the fridge so clean and bare. He knows himself and knew what Harry would see. He was fine with giving away that information. It may have even strengthened Marcone's position. And when most go pale at what they see in Harry's soul, Marcone doesn't even flinch. He just files the information away for future use. Harry knows that Marcone gained the upper hand from that exchange. And I love that here, and in almost every other soul gaze in the series, Harry very pointedly doesn't wonder what they see in him. I'm sure we'll find out by the end, um, and it will answer a ton of questions. Despite being of opposite moral alignment and trying to avoid each other for the most part, Dresden and Marcone cross paths and are even forced to work together again and again. Harry tolerates and even teams up with Marcone because Marcone is the least evil of the evils Harry faces. Um, under Marcone, the sex workers in his brothels are voluntary and well-paid adults. The victims of his organized crime syndicate are never children, and when they are, the offenders are punished with extreme prejudice. Now, Marcone may be personable, even likable. He has a code to which he adheres. Marcone is an imminent and rising badass, ex-military, and by now, a freeholding lord signed to the Unseelie Accords. For perspective, other freeholding lords include Vaterung, CEO of Monarch Securities and likely a retired god, the Archive, the human repository and incarnation of all human knowledge, and two dragons. Serious badassery. Uh, but make no mistake, have no illusions, he is not a good man. Harry has said that one of these days, all of the greater evils will be defeated, and on that day, Harry will have to come for Marcone. Marcone, having seen Harry's soul, will put Harry at a distinct disadvantage when that time comes. Speaking of which, here's an end game prediction. I think it likely that Marcone will turn out to be one of the three big bads from the last three books, the apocalyptic trilogy capstoning the Dresden Files. The most compelling evidence for this is a little meta, but the fact that Jim introduces Marcone so quickly in chapter three of book one and this indicates to me that Marcone is a primary, if not the primary antagonist that Harry will face. 
Um, though with how dark Harry's gotten recently and Marcone ironically working with Murphy in the Brighter Future Society, wouldn't it be a twist if Marcone has to protect Chicago from Harry? Chapter 4. Monica and the Scorpion This chapter is primarily plot set up and rereaders know what happens. I don't have a ton of analysis, though most of what I do have is kind of heavy as a heads up. Monica is trying to hide names again, and it reminds me of a recurring theme from House, the TV medical drama. It's never lupus. Wait, no. I'm thinking of everybody lies. Monica knows so much more than she's telling Harry, as we find later when he confronts her in her kitchen. Here's your trigger warning for a short discussion of marital abuse. If you want to opt out of that, you can skip ahead by about two minutes. No judgment. So chronic abuse is a truly oppressive thing and rewires one's brain to think of many innocuous things as threatening. Things like telling the truth. Victor has put her through so much and he's pulled her in so deep. She's so used to pretending in order to placate him. She's so afraid for her children. She would do anything to protect them from her husband except tell the truth. She also probably blames herself for her involvement in her husband's magical drug ring, uh, however peripheral and coerced it was. I think she thought that if she came clean this soon, Harry might think she was guilty too. So to get Harry to help her to find and neutralize Victor, she reverted to the innocent version of herself she was when all this started. Uh, maybe that was the last time she recognized herself. She also gives Harry the scorpion, a dangerous talisman, though we're not really told why. Um, perhaps it was out of ignorance, but it could also have been the desire for a failsafe, stemming from the bond between victim and abuser, maybe. Victor is, after all, a man she loved, the father of her children. Maybe she wanted to be sure Harry handled the case right however she defines that. To be corny about the episode title, she reminds me of a cornered animal. Um, that's a little like a tiger, no? But we only get a glimpse into Monica Sell's pain and can't truly understand her motives, logic, or excuses. Her character will carry the scars from this long-term traumatic experience forever. And I wonder if we'll see her again. Whew, cool. We made it through that. Uh, totally unrelated. I have to say, Jim, not the subtlest foreshadowing, letting Harry see the scorpion move out of the corner of his eye. Um, I suppose it had to have been set up somehow. Anyway, chapter five, um, McNally's Susan and the date. So this is not a normal bar. It's not even a normal ye old pub. Uh, it was made for wizards, literally. There's nothing electronic to be fried by grumpy practitioners, not even a jukebox, just a player piano. I love it. The purposeful placement of 13 tables, 13 ceiling fans, 13 mirrors on the walls for dispersing magical energies is one thing, but there are 13 basement windows, 13 pillars holding up the ground floor of the building above. This place was not just decorated to achieve this preventative effect. 
It was specifically designed, purpose-built for it. The carvings of, quote, folk tales and legends of the old world, unquote, hint that it isn't just wizards that Mac is affiliated with, but denizens of the never-never as well. Uh, Cold Days Book 14 turns these hints into klaxons, but we'll get there. Harry's perception is showcased again, identifying Susan with just his nose. Again, he loves playing into her notion that it was his magic that allowed him to do so, despite it being entirely mundane. It throws Susan off balance, though I'm sure she was planning to surprise him, likely using her sexuality to throw him off balance so he'd give her more information for her journalism. We get another beautifully concise line, which sums up the current dynamic of their relationship. Quote, Come on, I told her, sit down. I'll get you a drink while I refuse to tell you anything. Unquote. Mercenary efficiency! I absolutely love her character. Susan Rodriguez is smart, determined, confident in her sexuality, and gloriously shameless in using it to get what she wants, including information for her work and Harry for herself, um, both in seemingly equal measure. She is playfully disappointed that he isn't falling for it openly, uh, chiding him for not looking at her cleavage, which he promptly does as soon as she's not looking, uh, indulging his healthy libido with an attractive woman who welcomes the interaction. She asks him out. She is going to pick him up. It isn't said explicitly, but it's implied that she will pay. Part of that is that she's trying to get a story from him, but also because she likes to be in the driver's seat romantically. And while that's thankfully becoming more and more normal these days, 20 years ago when Stormfront was published, this Sadie Hawkins attitude towards dating was just starting to emerge in the popular culture. It's important for Jim to set Susan up as the strong, independent woman who won't indulge Harry's white knight complex. Someone will like, and he can't resist. She will, after all, be Harry's primary love interest for many books to come. Her absence after the events of Grave Peril, book three, hangs heavy over Harry's thoughts, and she too becomes a fierce warrior in her time away. Does she qualify as having a tiger soul? I'm sorry. Anyway, it seems that Susan followed Harry to Missouri on his last job, again, on the hunt for a story. We learn that the musician was both a drug user and had visions. This comes a mere three pages from a mention of the three-eye drug, which gives its users the sight. Hint, hint, maybe the not haunting wasn't so bogus after all. Also, I heard the fine creators over on the Paranet podcast mention this, and I think it's a great call. Uh, the three-eye rampage mentioned in this chapter was the near demolition of a neighborhood grocery store. Uh, three-eye users had seen that the place was going to explode in the future and wanted to hurry it along. Maybe this was the Walmart Harry and Murph trashed in Summer Night, book four. It says grocery store, not Walmart, and it says that it would explode, not be ransacked by a chlorophene, but... Visions are more symbolic and metaphorical than clear, literal depictions, uh, and it could very well have been a grocery store concurrent to book one. 
locations are sold, rented to new businesses. Um, so could be, guys, could be. Shout out to Rob and Pat of the Paranet Podcast. Subscribe to them too. Link in the description below. Uh, finally, we get a hint at the event in Harry's past, his seminal trauma of adolescence, the root of his complex complex with women, and the reason for his Doom of Damocles status with the White Council. Quote, I had been a miserable failure in relationships ever since my first love went sour. I mean, a lot of teenage guys fail in their first relationships. Not many of them murder the girl involved. Unquote. Now, on first read, this is supremely distressing. So far, we like Harry. He's intelligent and a loner, like many a fan of fantasy fiction. Uh, he's principled and funny, making up for much of his obstreperous nature. But what's this about killing his high school girlfriend? You're not going to tell us what this was about, Jim? No? Uh, okay, so can we really trust him? Despite that rereaders know he didn't murder or even accidentally kill Elaine, it puts us on guard and lets us know we're dealing with a morally gray character, despite this not being the act which makes him so. Now, before we finish up, I want to point out a bit of world building that just blows me away. Harry is explaining about the Midwest Arcane and how every once in a while the occult-themed tabloid catches a genuine story. Quote, Like the Unseelie incursion of 1994, when the entire city of Milwaukee had simply vanished for two hours. Gone. Government satellite photos showed the river valley covered with trees and empty of life or human habitation. All communications ceased. Then a few hours later, there it was, back again, and no one in the city itself the wiser. Unquote. Okay, what the actual fuck? More, please? Nothing about this is ever mentioned again. I need more. What happened? Why did the Unseelie incur? Where did Milwaukee go? How was it restored? Who was involved on each side? Is this where the Unseelie Accords originated? I... I want answers. Um, so, if pressed, I would extrapolate that Maeve was part of the disappearance, though what she wants with Milwaukee, I couldn't begin to guess. I think that Summer opposed her. Maybe Aurora, that would give the story balance. Uh, the Winter Lady against the Summer Lady. As we're shown in Cold Days, Book 14, the Winter Court is dark and savage because they have to be. They are given their power to guard the outer gates from the outsiders, and the summer court, connected to the Earth's vitality, is given their power to protect humanity from the winter court. This is the dynamic from before the winter court's infection, after Grave Peril, Book 3. Perhaps this is an example of one of these battles. Now tell me what you think in the comments. I read them all. That's it! For episode two. Next time, we'll look at chapters six and seven of Stormfront, book one of the Dresden Files. Arigato, Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. It means more than you can know. Uh, thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, a few linked below, 
those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never podcast is hosted on Podbean. More platforms to follow, I promise. I've been working on Apple. It's kind of complicated, though. Anyway, please follow, share, comment. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to see from me in the future. Or you can contact me at the Never Never Podcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Take care.